Chapter 8 of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A. Janelle Risa. Peace be unto you, was the answer, Mr. Barraclaw entirely closing his natural half-shut eyes as he delivered it. I'm obliged to you. Peace is an excellent thing. There's nothing I more wish for myself. But that is not all you have to say to me, I suppose. I imagine peace is not your purpose. As to our purpose, began Barclaw, it's one that may sound strange, and perhaps foolish to ears like yours. To the point, if you please, and let me hear what it is. You see here, sir, it is a grand purpose, and— changing his voice from half-sneer to a whine. It's the Lord's own purpose, and that's better. Do you want a subscription to a new ranter's chapter, Mr. Barclaw? Unless your errand be something of that sort, I cannot see what you have to do with it. I hadn't that duty on my mind, sir, but as Providence had led ye to mention the subject, I'll make it my way to take only a trifle you may have to spare. The smallest contribution will be acceptable. With that... He doffed his hat and held it out as a begging box, a brazen grin at the same time crossing his countenance. If I gave you sixpence, you would drink it. Baraclaw uplifted the palms of his hands and the whites of his eyes, evincing in the gesture a mere burlesque of hypocrisy. You seem a fine fellow, said Moore, quite coolly and dryly. You don't care for showing me that you are a double-dyed hypocrite, that your trade is fraud. You expect, indeed, to make me laugh at the cleverness with which you play your coarsely farcical part, while at the same time you think you are deceiving the men behind you. Moses' countenance lowered. He saw that he had gone too far. He was going to answer when the second leader, impatient of being hitherto kept in the background, stepped forward. This man did not look like a traitor, though he had an exceedingly self-confident and conceited air. Mr. Moore, commenced he, speaking also in his throat and nose and enunciating each word very slowly, as if with a view to giving his audience time to appreciate fully the uncommon elegance of the phraseology. It might perhaps justly be said that reason rather than peace is our purpose. We come in the first place to request you hear reason, and should you refuse, it is my duty to warn you in very decided terms that measures will be had resort to. He meant recourse, which will probably terminate in in bringing you to a sense of the unwisdom of the, the foolishness which seems to guide and guard your proceedings as a tradesman in this manufacturing part of the country. <clears throat> Sir, I would beg to allude that as foreigner coming from distant coast, another quarter and hemisphere of this globe throne, as I may say, a perfect outcast on these shores, the cliffs of Albion, you have not that understanding of huz and were ways which might conduce to the benefit of the working classes. If to come at once to particulars, you'd consider to give up this here mill, and go without further protraction straight home to where you belong. It ought happen be as well. I can see not again such a plan. What have ye to say to lads?' turning round to the other members of the deputation, who responded unanimously, "'Hear, hear!' "'Bravio, Noah, O Timms!' murmured Scott, who stood behind Mr. Moore. 
Moses'll never beat that, Clipso Albion, and t'other hemisphere. My certie, did you come from the Antarctic zone, maester? Moses is dished. Moses, however, refused to be dished. He thought he would try again. Casting a somewhat ireful glance at Noah Otims, he launched out in his turn, and now he spoke in a serious tone, relinquishing the sarcasm which he found had not answered. However you set up the pole of your taint among us, Mr. Moore, we lived in peace and quietness, yea, I may say in all loving kindness. I am not myself an aged person as yet, but I can remember as far back as maybe some twenty year, when hand labor were encouraged and respected, and no mischief-maker had ventured to introduce this here machine, which is so pernicious. Now, I'm not a cloth-dresser myself, but by trade a tailor. Howsoever, my heart is of a softish nature. I'm a very feelin' man, and when I see my brethren oppressed, like my great namesake of old, I stand up for him, which intent I this day speak with you face to face, and advises you to part with your infernal machinery and take on more hands. What if I don't follow your advice, Mr. Barraclaw? The Lord pardon you. The Lord soften your heart, sir. Are you in connection with the Wesleyans now, Mr. Barraclaw? Praise God, bless his name. I'm a joined methody which in no respect prevents you from being at the same time a drunkard and a swindler. I saw you one night a week ago, laid dead drunk by the roadside, as I returned from Stillbro Market, and while you preach peace, you make it the business of your life to stir up dissension. You no more sympathize with the poor who are in distress than you sympathize with me. You incite them to outrage for bad purposes of your own, so does the individual called Noah of Tim's. You too are restless, meddling, impudent scoundrels whose chief motive principle is a selfish ambition as dangerous as it is puerile. The persons behind you are some of them honest, though misguided men. But you too I count altogether bad. Barclaw was going to speak. Silence! You've had your say, and now I will have mine. As to being dictated to by you or any Jack, Jem, or Jonathan on earth, I shall not suffer it for a moment. You desire me to quit the country. You request me to part with my machinery. In case I refuse, you threaten me. I do refuse, point blank. Here I stay, and by this mill I stand, and into it I convey the best machinery inventors can furnish. What will you do? The utmost you can do, and this you will never dare to do, is burn down my mill, destroy its contents, and shoot me. What then? Suppose that building was a ruin and I was a corpse. What then, you lads behind these two scamps? Would that stop invention or exhaust science? Not for the fraction of a second of time. Another and better gig mill would rise on the ruins of this, and perhaps a more enterprising owner come in my place. Hear me! I'll make my cloth as I please, and according to the best lights I have. In its manufacture I will employ what means I choose. Whoever after hearing this shall dare interfere with me may just take the consequences. An example shall prove I'm in earnest. He whistled, shrill and loud. Sudgeon, his staff, and warrant came on the scene. Moore turned sharply to Barraclaw. You were at Stillbro, said he. I have proof of that. 
You were on the moor. You wore a mask. You knocked down one of my men with your own hand. You, a preacher of the gospel. Sudden, arrest him. Moses was captured. There was a cry and a rush to rescue, but the right hand, which all this while had lain hidden in Moore's breast, reappearing, held out a pistol. Both barrels are loaded, said he. I'm quite determined. Keep off. Stepping backwards, facing the foe as he went, he guarded his prey to the counting house. He ordered Joe Scott to pass in with Sudgeon and the prisoner and to bolt the door inside. For himself he walked backwards and forwards along the front of the mill, looking meditatively on the ground, his hand hanging carelessly by his side, but still holding the pistol. The eleven remaining deputies watched him some time, talking under their breath to each other. At length, one of them approached. This man looked very different from either of the other two who had previously spoken. He was hard-favored, but modest and manly-looking. "'I've not much faith in Moses Barraclough,' said he. "'And I would speak a word to you myself, Mr. Moore. It's out of no ill will that I'm here for my part. It's just to make an effort to get things straightened, for they're sorely a-crooked. You see, we're ill off, very ill off, where families is poor and pined. We're thrown out of work with these frames. We can get naught to do. We can earn naught. What is to be done? Mun, we say, whist and lig us down in thee. Nay, I've no grand words at my tongue's end, Mr. Moore, but I feel that it would be a low principle for a reasonable man to starve to death like a dumb critter. I will not do. I'm not for shedding blood. I'll neither kill a man nor hurt a man, and I'm not for pulling down mills and breaking machines. For as you say, that way I go, and will never stop invention, but I'll talk. I'll make a big as din as ever I can. Invention may be all right, but I know it isn't for poor folks to starve. Them that governs mun find a way to help us. They mun make fresh ordinations. You'll say that's hard to do, so much louder mun we shout up then. For so much slacker will to Parliament men be set on a tough job. "'Worry the Parliament men as much as you please,' said Moore. "'But to worry the mill-owners is absurd, and I, for one, won't stand it.' "'You're a hard right on,' returned the workman. "'Willn't ye give us a bit of time? "'Willn't ye consent to make your changes more slowly?' "'Am I the whole body of clothiers in Yorkshire? Answer me that.' "'You're yourselfin. "'And only myself.' And if I stopped by the way an instant, while others are rushing on, I should be trodden down. If I did as you wished me to do, I would be bankrupt in a month. And would my bankruptcy put bread into your hungry children's mouths? William Farron, neither to your dictation nor to that of any other will I submit. Talk to me no more about machinery. I will have my own way. I shall get new frames in tomorrow. If you broke these, I would still get more. I'll never give in. Here the mill bell rang twelve o'clock. It was the dinner hour. Moore abruptly turned from the deputation and re-entered the counting-house. His last words had left a harsh impression. He at least had failed in the disposing of a chance he was lord of, by speaking kindly to William Farron, who was a very honest man without envy or hatred of those more happily circumstanced than himself, thinking it no hardship and no injustice to be forced to live by labor, disposed to be honorably content if he could get work to do. Moore might have made a friend. It seemed wonderful how he could turn such a man without a conciliatory or sympathizing expression. The poor fellow's face looked haggard with want. He had the aspect of a man who had not known what it was to live in comfort and plenty for weeks, perhaps months. And yet there was no ferocity, no malignancy in his countenance. 
It was worn, dejected, austere, but still patient. How could Moore leave him thus, with the words, I'll never give in, and not a whisper of goodwill or hope or aid? Farron, as he went home to his cottage, once in better times, a decent, clean, pleasant place, now, though still clean, very dreary because so poor, asked himself this question. He concluded that the foreign mill-owner was a selfish, unfeeling, and he thought, too, a foolish man. It appeared to him that emigration, had he only the means to emigrate, would be preferable to service under such a master. He felt much cast down, almost hopeless. On his entrance his wife served out, in orderly sort, such a dinner as she had to give him and the barons. It was only porridge and too little of that. Some of the younger children asked for more when they had done their portion, an application which disturbed William much. While his wife quieted them as well as she could, he left his seat and went to the door. He whistled a cheery stave, which did not, however, prevent a broad drop or two, much more like the first of a thunder shower than those which oozed from the wound of the gladiator, from the gathering lids of his grey eyes, and plashing thence to the threshold. He cleared his vision with his sleeve, and the melting mood over, a very stern one followed. He still stood, brooding in silence, when a gentleman in black came up, a clergyman. It might be seen at once, but neither Hellstone, nor Malone, nor Dunn, nor Sweeting. He might be forty years old. He was plain-looking, dark-complexioned, and already rather grey-haired. He stooped a little in walking. His countenance, as he came on, wore an abstracted and somewhat doleful air, but in approaching Farron he looked up, and then a hearty expression illuminated the preoccupied, serious face. "'Is it you, William? How are you?' he asked. "'Middling, Mr. Hall. How are ye? Will ye step in and rest ye?' Mr. Hall, whose name the reader has seen mentioned before, and who, indeed, was vicar of Nunley, of which parish Farron was a native, and from whence he had removed but three years ago to reside in Briarfield, for the convenience of being near Hollow's Mill, where he had obtained work. Entered the cottage, and having greeted the good wife and the children, sat down. He proceeded to talk very cheerfully about the length of time that had elapsed since the family quitted his parish, the changes which had occurred since. He answered questions touching his sister Margaret, who was inquired after with much interest. He asked questions in his turn, and at last, glancing hastily and anxiously round through his spectacles—he wore spectacles, for he was short-sighted—at the bare room and the meagre and wan faces of the circle around him, for the children had come round his knee, and the father and mother stood before him. He said abruptly, "'And how are you all? How do you get on?' Mr. Hall, be it remarked, though an accomplished scholar, not only spoke with a strong northern accent, but, on occasion, used freely north-country expressions. "'We get on poorly,' said William. "'We're all out of work. I've sold most of the household stuff, as you may see, and what we're to do next, God knows. Has Mr. Moore turned you off?' "'He has turned us off, and I've such an opinion of him now that I think if he'd take me on again tomorrow I wouldn't work for him.' "'It's not like you to say so, William.' "'I know it isn't, but I'm getting different to myself. I feel I am changing. "'I wouldn't heed if the barons and to wife had enough to live on, but they're pinched, they're pined. "'Well, my lad, and so are you. I see you are. These are grievous times. I see suffering wherever I turn. 
William, sit down. Gray, sit down. Let us talk it over. And in order the better to talk it over, Mr. Hall lifted the least of the children onto his knee and placed his hand on the head of the next least. But when the small things began to chatter to him, he bade them, Whist! And fixing his eyes on the grate, he regarded the handful of embers which burned there very gravely. Sad times, he said, and they last long. It is the will of God, his will be done, but he tries us to the utmost. And again he reflected, You've no money, William, and you've nothing you could sell to raise a small sum? No, I've sold the chest of drawers, and the clock, and the bit of mahogany stand, and the wife's bonny tea tray, and said Ochini that she brought for a portion when we were wed. And if somebody lent you a pound or two, could you make any good use of it? Could you get into a new way of doing something? Theron did not answer, but his wife said quickly, Aye, I'm sure he could. He's a very contriving chap, is our William. If he'd two or three pounds, he could begin selling stuff. Could you, William? Please, God, returned William deliberately. I could buy groceries and bits of tapes and thread and what I thought would sell, and I would begin hawking at first. And you know, sir, interposed Grace, you're sure William would neither drink nor idle nor waste it in any way. He's my husband, and I shouldn't praise him. But I will say there's not a soberer, honest man in England, nor he is. Well, I'll speak to one or two friends, and I think I can promise to let him have five pounds in a day or two. As a loan, ye mind, not a gift. He must pay it back. I understand, sir. I'm quite agreeable to that. Meantime, there's a few shillings for you, Gracie, just to keep the pot boiling till custom comes. Now, Baron, stand up in a row and say your catechism while your mother goes and buys some dinner. For you've not had much today, I'll be bound. You begin, Ben. What's your name? Mr. Hall stayed till Grace came back. Then he hastily took his leave, shaking hands with both Farron and his wife. Just at the door, he said to them a few brief but very earnest words of religious consolation and exhortation. With a mutual, God bless you, sir, God bless you, my friends, they separated. End of chapter 8, part 2 Recording by A. Janelle Risa.